But if you just take notes tonight, if you'd like, you can add them next week when I bring those. So um, we're going to try and pick up where we left off if we remember. Uh, we're going through our ten rules of biblical interpretation. And uh, we, um, we were working toward the end of rule number two last uh, time we met. And that was uh, to read the Bible existentially. So um, just for a reminder, uh, if someone could um, help us remember that, because obviously the possibility exists for some misconceptions there. If you understand what existentialism is as a worldview, we're not talking about that. What do we mean by that? Read the Bible existentially. What did we say that means? Okay, good. So we talked about um, we talked about context and the important as we read and start begin to understand the context of the scripture that we're understanding it from the perspective of the writer. In other words, we sort of want to crawl into the skin of the person who's writing it and understand um, the historical context, the cultural context, uh, what's going on as they're doing that. Remember, we read the story, the very brief story of Nadab and Abihu. And we wondered maybe what it was like to be Aaron, to walk in and see your son struck down by God because they offered strange fire at the altar. We don't get any of those details and we're sort of left to wonder. And so we talked about the importance of trying to um, to put ourselves in the text and to uh, to be able to read it according to what was going on uh, at that time and in that place. Um, and it's... And we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I, I just mentioned how important this is because it's very popular in our day to uh, to come to the text and uh, perhaps we've all heard it at some point or another or maybe even said it, is that we look at the Bible and want to know what does the Scripture mean to me? Well, in the end, it doesn't matter what the Scripture means to us. It simply matters what it means, period. Um, and so... It's important to make that distinction, and the only way we can truly understand what the Scriptures mean, what the text means in its entirety, is when we begin to understand the culture and context in which it's written. So what are the two main, uh, what are the two main types of context that we talk about? I don't know if we went over this or not. Okay. The historical cultural context. So what was going on historically? Uh, in the historical redemptive history and what was going on within the culture. So that's one type, historical cultural. What's the other type of context we're looking for in the scriptures? Okay, uh, the, the, the uh, literary context. So what is, what is the context of the verse I'm reading? So uh, if you put those together, uh, we call this the grammatical historical method of interpretation. We're using the text itself, the literature of the Bible. Uh, and so when I read a verse, I don't isolate a verse. Just like if you send me a letter, I don't just read a sentence out of the middle of it. I read what you wrote before and after to get a feel for what all of it means. Um, and likewise, I have some understanding of the context, hopefully uh, culturally, culturally and everything else of what you are writing. So these things are very important as we press ahead, and um, we can find all of that a, a little bit easier as we try to, um, as we're reading, think what's going on around this situation. Remember, we did that exercise, and we, uh, we walked through the book of Philemon, 
and tried to think in some of those terms. What's going on here? Why is Paul writing this letter? Uh, who are these people? And, uh, and what is the surrounding? So, um, and remember, we talked about how uh, it gives us a whole new perspective on certain texts of Scripture that have been ripped out of context and uh, given entirely new meanings. Um, uh, my, my favorite, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a, um, that's not a, uh, a verse uh, for athletes to uh, brandish on their uniforms and their bodies so that they can win athletic competitions. It's written by the Apostle Paul while he's in prison, um, and uh, he's talking from a specific context. We need to keep that in mind as we read, or else we come up with a lot of wacky conclusions. So any, uh, any questions about that when we... Um, before we press on to uh, rule number three. Okay. <clears throat> rule number three is historical narratives are to be interpreted by the didactic. And I'll explain what we mean by those. The term didactic is from the Greek word that means to teach or to instruct. So when we look at historical narratives in the Bible, and where do we primarily see historical narrative in the Bible? What parts of the Bible are his, historical stories? Were Old Testament? Okay. What were you going to say? Is that way? Okay. Acts? Yeah. What else? Okay, yeah. Some uh, specific, there's specific books, um, so we would we would look at um, you know particularly the books that are um, and and sections of books that are um, kind of story based uh, and call those historical narratives. So um, like the prophets, we probably wouldn't lump into that category because that's a certain type of literature. It's a prophetic literature. Um, but uh, we would look at the Gospels, for example. Those are historical narrative. Those are stories about uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Acts is a telling of the story um, of the church that was established immediately after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Um, so there are specific books in the Bible that we would label as historical narratives, primarily that they're telling a story. And so what we're... What we're proposing in this rule of interpretation is that those books are to be interpreted by the books that are didactic or by the books that teach. So what books would those be, for example? What are some of the books in the Bible that teach? They all teach, of course, but that have a, a form of... It, it, they're written for our, uh, our direct instruction. Okay, Proverbs is a good one. Um, the, the, the thing with Proverbs we need to keep in mind as we read Proverbs is the Proverbs are not absolutes. Uh, the Proverbs are generally true in everyday life. They're principles to live by, but they're not, uh, they're not written as absolutes. Uh, we have to keep that in mind because a lot of the Proverbs we can look at and say, I'm doing this and it's not coming about. Well, it's a general principle to follow, but it is didactic in nature. What else? Yeah, the epistles, uh, specifically the writings of Paul, right? And all of them are divide. All of Paul's writings we can even divide up even more. 
the first section is theological instruction, and the second section of his letters is practical application of that theology. Um, so these are the didactic texts in which we interpret historical narrative by. There are several throughout the Bible. Um, as you, uh, just as a side note, if uh, hopefully all of you have um, kind of settled on how you're going to read your Bible this year, uh, picked a different maybe reading plan than you've done before, continuing on with something you've already started. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever heard about doing this is as you read through the Old Testament, a lot of times we, we look at some of those things and say, I, I just don't understand how this has anything to do with the rest of the Bible. I don't understand what's going on or why this is in the Scriptures or anything else. Um, one good way to help you get uh, your hands around some of that is as you read the Old Testament, find out which sections of the Old Testament are referenced in the New Testament. And so then you can look at the look at those sections in the Old Testament and just kind of make a note to yourself that this is referenced in Philippians 3 or whatever. And so when you come to that, you read you read that section of scripture in the Old Testament and then flip over to Philippians 3 and see what the Apostle Paul wrote concerning that part of Scripture. And so what you've done then is you've created for yourself a commentary uh, that is written by the Apostles. The Apostles are explaining the Old Testament text to us. We, all, we, we need to read the Bible in that way. The New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. And this is one of the few books that we're, we're kind of wanting to read backwards. We read the New Testament in order to understand the Old Testament. Um, uh, some people would disagree with that. I think that's the way we need to read the Bible. Um, there's a, a kind of a, a common help in understanding why um, the Old Testament, this is a little rap lyric for you here, the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. So we want to read where Christ has been revealed first and read that back into where he's concealed so we have a greater understanding. Any questions on any of that before I press on? It's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's been a popular thing in our day to hear people say that they're, um, they're red-letter Christians. Uh, you may have heard that before. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of Bibles that um, the words of Jesus are in red letters. And so what they're talking about is I'm a Christian that, um, that mainly just adhere, adheres to the, to the teachings of Jesus. What's the problem with that kind of thinking? Okay, that's part of it. He, uh, as we read the, the words of Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't... He doesn't address everything that we see in all of scriptures in those specific places. And they're only in four books of the Bible, essentially, right? And, well, I take that back. Six books of the Bible. That's exactly right. Good, very good. Um, the Gospels are the writings of the apostles as well. They're simply recording the words of Jesus. Um, so it's this, it's the same thing as reading First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, uh, any of the epistles of Paul. Um, so it's a silly, uh, it's a silly proposition. Um, it doesn't it doesn't mean that uh, 
what, what they're trying to say then is that Jesus' words carry more authority than the rest of the scriptures, which they don't. And as Kaylee said, it's, uh, it, the whole Bible uh, Paul has written is uh, for our instruction, for our uh, teaching, training, correction, reproof, uh, uh, all of these things um, he has given to us. God has inspired the word of God for us, all of it, all 66 books. So uh, we need not um, see our confidence in the word of God and the authority of the Bible um, eroded, uh, but that has been uh, a popular way to look at the scriptures. Um, looking at the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul um, in a different light. They are the same, or they wouldn't be in the Bible. Um, and where, do, uh, where does the authority in order to write all the scriptures come from? It all comes from the same source. It's all inspired by the same source. The authority is all derived from the same source. Um, just an, a note here I think uh, is, is helpful in this. If Paul and Peter and the, and the other New Testament authors receive their authority as apostles from Jesus himself, how can we criticize them in their teaching and still claim to follow Christ? This is the same issue that Jesus took up with the Pharisees. They claimed to honor God while they rejected the one God sent and bore witness to. They claimed to be children of Abraham while they rude the one who caused Abraham to rejoice. They appealed to the authority of Moses while rejecting the one of whom Moses wrote. <laughs> so the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus, but saying they loved the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures, except he was what the Scriptures are talking about. He is, and uh, he is... Um, he is the God that they say they love so much. And so you see their blatant hypocrisy there, uh, the very thing that Jesus was constantly uh, working against them in. So um, this, uh, those types of think, this type of thinking is not, uh, is not confined to the Pharisees. It's not new in our day. It has been an attack on the church uh, for many, many years since the beginning of the church. Um, who knows uh, anything about the Gnostics? What, what did the Gnostics teach and believe? Exactly. Um, now, the, the Gnostics, um, as a result of this type of teaching, they, rein, they reinterpreted Scripture, then they, they wrote their own Scriptures even. A lot of those Scriptures have been found, um, and you'll hear thing you know, the Discovery Channel is always coming to our rescue and finding the newest and latest and greatest that we missed and didn't put in the Bible. Uh, these are all Gnostic writings. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, um, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the, the Library of Nag Hammadi. All of these things that you maybe hear about, uh, all of, uh, uh, for the most part, a lot of them are Gnostic writings. There were, there were large groups of Gnostics and various sects of Gnostics, and uh, their teaching was rampant. Well... Um, I assure you that Gnosticism is alive and well today and is very much a part of our culture. Um, but uh, Gnosticism was being attacked in, uh, in the writings of the Bible. That's how early it was. First John is, uh, in part, a book against Gnosticism. Remember in First John, he's saying, I'm writing to you in order to help you understand whether or not you are of the faith. Why? Again, we need to know the historical context here. 
he's talking uh, to a people who are being tempted to be led astray by the teachings of Gnosticism. And so he's helping them um, through that. Um, so what was going on then is the Gnostics were challenging the authority of the apostles. And so they became their own apostles of sort, and they wrote uh, their own scriptures, and they took on the names of the apostles so that their writings would be seen as authoritative. Um, Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers who was really um, fierce in going after uh, the Gnostics. Uh, He said, if you don't obey the apostles, you can't be obedient to God, because if you reject the apostles, you reject the one who sent them. And if you reject the one who sent the apostles, you reject the one who sent him. So, in other words, the apostles are sent by Jesus, and Jesus was sent by the Father. So if you reject one, you reject them all. Uh, And Irenaeus um, took, he was simply taking Jesus' argument to the Pharisees about himself, uh, and he was applying it to the Gnostics. So, Hopefully we're seeing very clearly the importance of, um, of looking at the scriptures in the right manner. And in this regard, uh, as we understand context and as we understand what parts of scripture are to be read, how, uh, we, we begin to, uh, to grow in this um, ability to have a, a greater understanding of um, how to set all of this uh, together. Um, one of the one of the main reasons why this rule specifically is important is to uh, help us to not draw too many conclusions from the text that aren't there. Um, there's a uh, there are a lot of um, Bible teachers and preachers who draw implications from the text that um, they're. They're just uh, kind of coming up with them on their own. Uh, Some of them are just plain silly. Um, There's a whole school of thought uh, that believes every text in the Bible is to be spiritualized. Um, So I've I've read some of this. I can't make this up. It's so far out there. Um, Where they, for example, would talk about in, uh, as you read about uh, the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They want to spiritualize all of those passages, and so uh, they have ways of explaining all the different elements of a tent peg, that each of the, each of the parts of a tent peg, the, the head of it and the tip of it and what the material is made out of, all of these things have spiritual meaning to them. Well, as you read the text, I'm pretty certain that um, it's simply referring to a tent peg, and that's it. Um, but they want to spiritualize these things and have uh, some uh, some great explanation. Um, and maybe they're, I don't know how, but they're running out of things to preach, so they have to come up with something. Um, but the idea is that every word of Scripture, because this is a spiritual book, uh, needs to be spiritualized, which simply is not true. Um, there is historical literature in the Bible, and we need to read it. Remember, like we said in rule number one, we need to read it like we do any other literature in that regard. History is history, and we need to read it historically. Um, So we don't want to draw too many inferences from the Bible that aren't really there. So let's let's do an example of this uh, so you can understand exactly what I'm saying. Turn uh, to one that happens probably more than most. Go to John chapter 6. John 6, will begin in verse 16. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Okay, and the the parallel passage to this is, um, well, not parallel, another uh, instance of this nature when Jesus was with the disciples, when Jesus is sleeping in the boat and he awakened, they awaken him because of the raging storm and he calms the wind and the waves and they say, who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? So, um, what, uh, what sermons have you heard about these passages? What is this text about? Okay. All right. So we'll read this passage and uh, we'll say uh, what this what this is telling us then is that um, when we are uh, when we're in the boat and we're being tossed to and fro, the storms of life are beating down against us uh, that we need to uh, we need to look out on the water and see Jesus coming toward us. We need to reach out to Jesus. We 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 need to see Jesus calming the storms of our life. Um, what are we what are we doing to the passage when we do something like that is that accurate is that what the is that what the writer of the gospel is teaching us first of all what is the main point of the passage okay yeah the power of jesus the authority of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. This is a passage about Jesus. It has nothing to do with the storms of your life. It has nothing to do with the winds and the waves beating in on you as you uh, sail along in the boat of life, whatever, however we can phrase that. Um, this is about looking to Jesus in all of his divinity, in all of his authority, in all of his ability to do the supernatural and to point us to the reality that Jesus is uh, big and powerful and glorious. Now, here's my thinking through this sort of thing. And perhaps someone disagree. I don't, I don't know. Um, to me, I don't, I don't want to draw those kinds of applications from the text. Because if I can see and understand Jesus to be as big and powerful and glorious as this passage shows him to be, then I don't need to draw the implications of, well, he's going to calm the storms in my life. I, I'm going to see him much greater than that and much bigger. So I just want to expand our view of God so we have a really big view of God. So when things come into our lives, we're, we, don't even, we don't need some kind of maybe cliche type of thing to think about that is a spinoff of what the text is actually teaching. I want instead to have a really big God uh, who does these types of things. And uh, if, if Jesus can calm the wind and the waves and everything else, then certainly uh, whatever my issues are in life are going to be no sort of problem. Go ahead. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If he can calm them, uh, we should probably look at who the source is as well. Um, and so the... Uh, the logic of that sort of spinoff doesn't even really pan out very well either because 
uh, a lot of times we're going to talk about Jesus is there to help us through the hard times, but we don't really, we have a hard time talking about the fact that, you know, he created them. So, go ahead. Sure. Sure. That's a good example of this. Um, Again, what is Jesus doing in the passage about the rich young ruler? What is he revealing about himself more than anything? Does he... First of all, this isn't a very good church growth strategy, right? <laughs> it's not the way to win friends and influence people. Um, he's revealing about himself that he knows his heart. He knows that he's not following the law, obviously. He knows that he is far from a place where he's ready to, uh, to give all that he has for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's, he's pointing to. It's not... And, one of the things, and we'll get to this as we move along, we need to be careful as we read the Bible that we, uh, that we understand whether or not a passage is descriptive. In other words, it's describing something that happened for our understanding, or it's prescriptive. Is this giving me a prescription that needs to be applied to my life? Um, there's nothing in here that command, gives a command to us in terms of now you have to go do this and live in poverty or else you're not. Uh, faithful to to the Lord, Jesus is simply pointing out the reality of the man's heart that he's not willing to do something like that. He's not willing, you know. Another where Jesus um, says, uh, you know, if you want to follow me, you need to um, you need to hate your father and your mother and your brother and sister. Well, it doesn't mean we need to literally hate them, but we're willing to give even the closest of our relationships away in order to be disciples of Christ. And that, that's, the, that's the point there. Sure. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, he's pointing out, pointing out the idolatry of things that God gave him in order to look beyond them to him. Um, and he was the giver of them. And uh, surely, if he pleased, he would have taken them away. Um, so, did that help? Good. There's a lot of passages. What's uh, what's the common theme of uh, what do we hear about David and Goliath? What's that a story about? Or how? Okay, yeah, the underdogs. Uh, God likes the underdog, right? Um, we we can uh, we can conquer the giants in our lives. See, I can write these sermons. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so they'll even you know I've heard one time. Uh, that there there was a speci- there was something specific about each of the stones that David threw at Goliath, slung at Goliath. Um, that's silly. What is the passage really about? What is that story about? Okay, same thing. It's about God. It's not. It's not primarily about David and Goliath. It's showing how impractical is it that a small uh, shepherd boy is going to knock down a giant with uh, with some stones. It shows the power of God and God working through His people, using the weak in order to shame the strong, in order to uh, reveal His glory. Uh, that's again what it's about. Yeah, I don't. I think uh, I don't know if it's blasphemy. I wouldn't say it's blasphemy, but I do think it's really um, it's really kind of taking a very shallow view of of the scriptures. 
we're kind of reducing it down to something. I, you know, it's it's a good uh, it's a good analogy, I guess, for that sort of thing. But it really reduces the the substance of what that's really pointing to. And because of those sorts of things, we kind of lose the true meaning in the mix. I think that has a lot to do with why. But um, I wouldn't say specifically that that in itself would be blasphemous. Um, also, a part of this is, um, this was real popular when I was a, a teenager. I think it's still around a lot today. I don't see it as much, of course, as um, that a lot, a lot of times we want to look at situations and we want to ask, in this situation, um, how would Jesus handle it? What would Jesus do here and how do I uh, do it the same? That sounds sounds good and right, um, but what's the problem with thinking uh, necessarily in those terms? There, we run into a few hiccups as we think about what would Jesus do, and I just need to emulate him. What what are the hiccups we run into? Okay, sure. So a lot of what we see Jesus doing is not simply from his humanity, but uh, from his divinity. So there are certain things we can't do that Jesus did. Certainly, what else? Okay, yeah, we're not him. <laughs> uh, so um, there's there's an issue there. Uh, wh- What's that? Okay. Sure. So uh, maybe we're thinking beyond what the scriptures have already revealed and uh, we're kind of um, speculating. There's a lot of speculation there. Sure. Sure. I, you know, it'd be easy if there's not a specific command in the scriptures and I want to look at a situation and say, well, what would Jesus do here? Um, I'm pretty sure that in my sinful flesh... I am going to find a way to make it most favorable for me. <laughs> and if Jesus were to do it, uh, probably wouldn't look the same at all. Um, the better question is, what does Jesus want me to do in this situation? Um, because, again, we have to think about everything we know about Jesus is rooted in a specific context, right? When Jesus walked the earth, he had a mission. And what were the elements of that mission? He came to do what? Okay, how does he do that? How, what, was, what did Jesus accomplish in order that we could be saved? Okay, bingo. He lived a perfect life. In other words, he fulfilled the law of God. Jesus, as a man, was under the ceremonial and civil laws of God. And so to ask a question of what would Jesus do... Uh, sometimes wouldn't even apply to us because he's fulfilled the very things that we're no longer entitled to keep. And so when I ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, if, we're, if you're talking about if we're in first century Judaism, what would Jesus do? Um, I don't know. He'd maybe go to the temple and sacrifice a lamb. Um, I don't have the authority of Jesus to, uh, if everyone is getting riled up and doing silly things in here. I can't just come in here and throw over the book table and start beating people. I don't ha- I'm not the Lord of the church. I don't have that authority. 
So again, to ask that question uh, kind of assumes some things um, in terms of our relationship to him. Um, so it's not a one-to-one parallel. So we just need to be careful as we think through some of those things. It's better to ask the question, what would Jesus want me to do in this situation? And I think that's a fair question, and maybe some would think we're splitting hairs there. Um, but I, I don't think so. Um, any any thoughts about that? Um, Another thought on that maybe is um, that emulating the life of Jesus is making a subtle move um, from what is permissible to what is obligatory. For example, um, we see in the scriptures that um, that Jesus uh, healed people on the Sabbath. And we're going to talk about this on Sunday as we hit the fourth commandment, but we see Jesus healing people on the Sabbath. So there are those that would argue today that it is that part of our Sabbath duties, part of our duties on the Lord's Day is to visit those who are, uh, who are sick and suffering or whatever else. That it's, not, that it's not optional, in other words. That on the Sabbath day, we need to go and visit those who are sick. Well, what, what was Jesus teaching was he teaching that this is something you have to do on the sabbath was that his teaching when he was doing that no all of jesus's teaching on the sabbath was correcting what the pharisees had gotten wrong he was simply doing that to show that this is uh this is permissible on the sabbath this is something that is uh good and right and that honors the lord and that we should be doing on occasion but it's not something that is uh, prescriptive, that we have to do that. And so some might. Uh, some, uh, maybe that's part of what they do every Lord's Day is after worship, they go uh, visit family or friends or they go to the nursing home and visit those who are sick. Um, but that doesn't mean that we all have to. And so, again, and it's sort of uh, what Alex asked about the rich young ruler. We have to be careful as we read the text and determine, does this mean that I have to do that exactly the same way, um, or is it just pointing out a principle? Is there a principle here to be understood? Um, another one that people really like to run with is when we see the early church meeting in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we see the church, uh, they're selling all of their possessions and they're giving the, the proceeds of that to the apostles and the apostles distribute them as anyone has need. And so some want to say, well, there's the, uh, the biblical uh, framework for, um, for communist society um, that we need to simply find a central resource, give all of our money and let them uh, distribute it to meet the needs of the people. Um, is Acts chapter 2 prescriptive? No. Well, some want to take that to say, well, that also means that uh, we need to be meeting in homes. We can't, we can't own buildings and meet in buildings together uh, because um, the early church didn't do that, um, which I would argue is maybe not the case. Um, but what makes a home more holy or more biblical than a building we're meeting? So it can get a little bit silly uh, because I want to argue then, well, they didn't have uh, they didn't have 
uh, HVAC in their um, in their homes. They didn't have uh, fans. They didn't have electricity. So we need to balance all that too. Um, so we need to be careful as we read and ask those questions. Is this describing something or is this uh, prescribing something? Is there a command here uh, to apply to my life and to conform to or is there simply a principle that I need to derive? Or is this historical narrative um, that is going to help me to have a better grasp of, um, uh, of the redemptive history? Any any uh, comments on that? All right. Last thing uh, before we're out of time. One of the maybe most, maybe not most, but very close to one of the most serious problems with drawing out too many conclusions from narrative. Um. What do we learn about the lives of almost every one of the um, people who are written about in the Bible? <laughs> They're all sinners, just like me and just like you. So, do we read the story about David and Bathsheba and say, well, David was a man after God's own heart and... David, you know, he saw Bathsheba and he lusted over her. And so, you know, I mean, hey, the king did it. Uh, and things turned out okay for him in the end and God still loved him. So you see where this can lead us is if we don't read narrative rightly, we can, uh, we can begin to think uh, wrong thoughts. A historical narrative is telling a story. Uh, the book of Job is full of really, really bad theology. Why? Because you see Job's friends coming to Job and telling him all these things that aren't true about God. But if we're to read that as prescriptive, then we see when uh, Bildad comes to Job and says, uh, well, only, only, people who, um, only people who have sinned uh, experience suffering. So there must be some unknown sin in your life that you... Uh, that you haven't rooted out. You need to find out how you've sinned and repent of that so God will restore your health and your fortune and everything else. Well, that's, that's not what that's teaching. In fact, God comes back in the end and rebukes all of them. Uh, he says, uh, gird up your loins. In other words, put on your cup. It's coming, and it's really going to get bad. Um, and he just blasts them for several chapters. Um, so we have to be very careful. Another example of this perhaps would be... Um, Remember when Abraham takes Isaac to the altar at Mount Moriah. He's, uh, he gets up there, he straps Isaac down, and he gets the knife over his son, and then the angel of the Lord stops him. Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against your son, against the, the lad, I like that language, um, and do nothing to him. Uh, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, believe it or not, this one, uh, these two verses in Genesis have created uh, an entire false uh, theology that has spun off into heresy. Based on these words, when God says, For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. Well, people want to infer from that that God didn't know 
that Abraham, whether or not Abraham was going to do it. But now that he saw it, now he does know, and he stopped him in the nick of time. What does that say about God's omniscience? He doesn't have any. (laughs) The false theology that spun off of that is called open theism. And open theism teaches that God doesn't know what's coming in the future because the future hasn't happened yet. And so God can only deal with what has happened in the past and is currently happening in this moment and make a a very educated guess uh, based upon um, his his goal, his conclusion in the end. So he just has to work within the confines of what we do and don't do in order to determine how the future is going to work out. Um, That's not what that text is talking about. God knew in advance what Abraham was going to do. He's not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands in just this extreme anxiety like, man, I really hope Abraham's obedient and follows through with this. He knows what he's going to do. Um, So, uh, again, it's very, very, very important that we we use uh, the didactic portions of Scripture, that we use the teaching parts of the Bible to help us interpret the historical narrative. What are the theological principles here? that the Lord wants me to draw out in order to use um, and apply to my life. Any closing thoughts there? We'll pick up on this rule. There's a few more things we need to uh, discuss on this next week. Any other thoughts? All right. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you again for our time together tonight. We're grateful uh, for um, for your word and that we have the opportunity to be instructed from your word, uh, to be challenged um, in how we read the word and understand the word. And Lord, our ultimate goal is that, um, that we would know uh, what is right and true. And the only way to know what is right and true is to know the scriptures. And so we want to know the scriptures rightly. We want to know how to read them, how to understand, how to apply. And we pray, God, that you uh, you would help us to work through that, each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that in this year you would help all of us to be very faithful to our Scripture reading and study, that you would help us to um, to be steadfast in our, uh, in our efforts uh, to know the Bible, to read the Bible, and to study the Scriptures. I pray, Lord, as we're meeting on Wednesday nights, that uh, we would go immediately from here as, as we go the next time to open the Bible, that we would apply these things and be thinking about these specific um, rules that we're learning um, of interpretation and that we're thinking about context and we're thinking most ultimately about what you are doing in the text, uh, what you are revealing to us about yourself and uh, about your work throughout redemptive history Uh, so lord thank you thank you for the opportunity to gather thank you for the scriptures in our language that we can read and study them and uh, thank you most of all that you've given us christ and the desire in our hearts to uh, to gather to read and know uh, the bible for your glory and uh, for our joy in jesus name amen good night